today on Ag News Daily. It could be in the middle of Iowa and do that in Vietnam so we can learn those lessons. So that's that's the idea. It's not infecting anybody. We don't have to go over there and infect anybody. They've got it moving around just fine, and we want to learn the lessons about it while it's doing that. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Hell joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, I, it is a Friday indeed. We are officially finished up with the World Pork Expo here. It's been a bit of a long week, I'm not going to lie. It has been, but it's definitely been one that is full of learning, conversation, and we're going to be talking about African swine fever today with Dr. Paul Sundberg from Schick. So that'll be a great conversation because I think a large concern for producers was African swine fever. I mean, they had some biosecurity measures that was that people were taking walking into World Pork Expo. Of course, we had to do the foot bath. So I think that it'll be exciting for sure. Absolutely. And we've had him on the podcast, but gosh, it's been over two years. Uh, I think it was three World Pork Expos ago that we chatted with him when Schick was just really getting ramped up here. So we're going to see where things are at now. But in the meantime, we've got to see where some news is at for now, Ash. And I'll kick things off here today. With a bit of an exclusive update here, I found this story here on Reuters and wasn't aware this was going on this week, so I do apologize if we're a little behind the ball here, but the Biden administration appears to be considering giving refiners relief from the U.S. biofuel law. Yes, we're talking here the RFA. The uh, Biden administration has been receiving a lot of pressure, it seems, from labor union and U.S. senators including those from his home state of Delaware, to consider ways to provide relief to U.S. refiners from biofuel blending mandates, according to three sources familiar with the with the matter. Now, of course, this is a big issue of contemption for folks in the agricultural belt of our nation, uh, because if we do see things like small refinery waivers being granted, that, of course, pushes down the value of ethanol and E10 and all of those good uh, biofuels that support our corn market. But this issue also pits the administration against blue-collar refinery workers and farmers. So it sounds like he is being prompted to make a decision about the face of the administration and whether or not he is going to, I guess, support the refinery industry or support the renewable fuel slash farming industry. So he's getting a lot of pressure right now, it sounds like, from folks on both sides of the aisle, both sides of this issue in particular. And in meetings uh, earlier this week, it sounds like Reagan and some senators discussed options like a nationwide general waiver exempting the refining, refining industry from some obligations, lowering the amount of renewable fuel refiners must blend in the future, and creating a price cap on compliance credits as well as issuing here what's called an emergency declaration. So something he could put into uh, word, I suppose, immediately. So unsure here, they're, of course, not confirming or denying any of these statements. So we'll have to continue to watch here because it is going to be a contentious issue moving forward. And I'm sure we'll see folks like uh, Senator Ernst and Senator Grassley weigh in on this issue. Well, Delaney, I have some Biden administration news myself as earlier today, the administration began a process to reverse a Trump era policy that opened up one of the largest U.S. national forests, that being the Tongass in Alaska, to logging and mining. 
This move is the latest effort to roll back a land use decision made under the Trump administration that reflected a growing emphasis on conservation over commercial development. In a notice that was posted by the White House earlier today, the administration said that it was going to propose or that it would propose to repeal or replace the exemption of the Tongass from the 2001 roadless rule that was finalized late last year. Now, that Clinton-era rule banned logging, roads, and mining in underdeveloped forest, or undeveloped forests, I should say. Alaska state officials had petitioned for the change because they said the rule has cost Alaskans jobs. And we're seeing some things on both sides. I mean, environmentalists are kind of applauding this decision, while Alaskans Republican Governor Mike Dunleavy vowed to, quote, use every tool available to push it back against the administration's move, saying that it could cost Alaskans jobs. So we're getting two sides to the story here. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, definitely going to be interesting to see if this does get pushed back. I mean, we've heard quite a bit, I feel like, from the Biden administration about conservation and environmental issues. So really not shocked to see that they're trying to do this. Yeah. And speaking of labor issues, this is one that I just remembered here while we were recording the podcast. I heard this from I don't even remember who, uh, but somebody I chatted with this week at World Pork Expo, and this is just kind of starting to make national headlines. It's still pretty early on here. But at the Sioux Falls Smithfield location, Meatpacking workers have become what they're calling emboldened by the pandemic's health threats and economic repercussions and are demanding higher wages at the Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Smithfield Foods plant. And I believe this uh, pork processing plant plant accounts for about uh, 5%, I want to say, of pork processed in the U.S. worldwide. Sounds like they just got signed off here by labor unions to go ahead and strike. And so these labor negotiations are escalated as a sign of what might be a renewed boldness among workers in the physically demanding meatpacking industry. They are saying that JBS pork plant about 70 miles away in Worthington, Minnesota are getting paid about $19 an hour and Smithfield workers say that they need to be paid the same. So they voted on Monday on whether or not to authorize the the walk out that was authorized officially by union leaders of the UFCW. And I believe that, I don't know if that um, strike has officially started now that the union has signed off on it, but that will or could be impacting the supply chain a little bit here moving forward. So we'll be sure to keep an eye on that, especially for folks that live in that neck of the woods. It could mean that you may not be able to haul your hogs in for slaughter. Well, Delaney, we've been seeing these labor issues kind of plaguing the nation, and I feel like I've seen a lot on social media, it just being in the food service industry. But I mean, this is really a segment of the food service industry, so I feel like it was only a matter of time before something like this happened. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right, and... I'm not saying whether or not they should get paid $19 an hour, but I just know I don't want to work in a Smithfield facility. So I think it's tough work. I think, you know, there's been a lot of concern, especially as the pandemic has rolled out here, that uh, perhaps they need a a little more worker safety, a little more attention to them. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that there. But yeah, I really just hope it doesn't cause any supply chain disruptions because I know folks had already dealt with so much of that here over the past year. 
Well, Delaney, another concern of the industry, of course, is always going to be biosecurity, disease prevention, and management. And of course, PERS is a part of that. But as we're in summer now, I mean, it seems to normally subdue here in these summer months, but it looks like PERS could be getting more lethal in parts of the upper Midwest, according to Phil Dirk with Imperio, which is a livestock feed ingredient manufacturer in the UK. And you might be thinking, what is some dude over in the UK? What does he have to do with, you know, PERS here in the US? But Burke is saying that PERS is wreaking havoc on swine farms in northern Iowa and southern mm-hmm. Minnesota. Yeah, I've I heard from quite a few producers this week that mentioned PERS was starting to their rear its ugly head in their neck of the woods. And I'm hearing that it's it's pretty lethal. Yeah. I, I guess it's a new strain that's kind of coming about right now. But uh, it it was said in this article that I'm reading, Burke refers to it as PERS on steroids. So mm. I don't think I'd want to be a pig farmer dealing no, with that right now. No, absolutely not. But that could support market prices. We're not quite ready to talk markets yet, Ashton. But I did want to talk trade because... Uh, one of our biggest trading partners, the EU, is set to have a summit next week hosted by the European Council that U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai is heading to in Brussels. And she said she's optimistic heading into that event, expecting some intense negotiations and is expecting as well to end disputes with the European Union as well as European allies to address trade challenges with China. So she's optimistic that the U.S. and the EU can both suspend retaliatory tariffs and that they can deal with trade tensions that have been going on now for well over a year and hopefully decide a path forward here as far as trade negotiations. Delaney, I just have one other piece of news today. I'm going to end it on beef, even though we just ended our week on pork. NCBA is asking the USDA to eliminate the use of potentially misleading origin labels of beef. I think that uh, labeling, I mean, I've, I've said this before, I kind of have a, a weird stance or I don't know what kind of stance I have, what you want to call it, but I definitely think that labeling is super important and that we need to kind of be educating our consumers through labeling. And it sounds like NCBA kind of has this same thought. NCBA President Jerry Bone says the use of product of the USA might mislead consumers if beef is imported to the U.S. originated in another country. Imported beef products are eligible to be labeled products of the USA if the product has been minimally processed or even repackaged in a USDA-inspected facility. NCBA says that they hope to work with the USDA's Agriculture Marketing Service to educate cattle producers, processors, and retailers about the various opportunities that exist to develop voluntary, verifiable origin marketing claims that deliver tangible benefits to cattle producers without violating rules of trade. I didn't know that we could label something product of the USA, even if it's, I mean, they said minimally processed, Mm -hmm. so, and even repackaged, and that's such a a small thing to do. I I definitely see where it could be misleading. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of question around that. I think other countries do that as well. 
So yeah, definitely good to get some clarity. But I have just one other quick piece of news here, Ashton, before we head into chat markets. And I know we had a pretty hard sell-off today after yesterday's WASDE report released. Saw some profit taking today heading into the weekend. But I've got to remind folks, I know it looks a little scary today with so much red on the screen, but we still do have a lot of hot and dry left in store here for much of the United States, so much so that about 45% of the country is currently in moderate or worse drought, according to the latest U.S. drought monitor. That's compared to just 39% at this time last year. And according to the USDA, about 35% of the U.S. corn crop and 31% of soybean acres are in regions experiencing drought, along with more than 80% of the sunflower, durum wheat, and spring wheat production. So we should see maybe prices reacting to this a little bit more as we get into the heat and heart of summer. But I talked, I think, as I've mentioned this week, not to sound like a broken record, but I've just talked to so many folks this week that really have said things are hot and dry, and they're a little nervous that they're not going to have a lot of crop to market this year. So I think we still could see some excitement in the commodity markets yet to come. Yeah, Delaney, I think it's going to be pretty hot and dry when I get back to Lubbock. We reached triple digits this week while I've been away. So glad I wasn't there for that. No. But I'm, uh, we're experiencing some rain here in Des Moines right now and I'm going back to more hot and dry. So, I mean, I know most of the country is feeling that right now and, uh, we'll just have to wait and see if we do get any relief. We certainly will, but we didn't get any relief today in the commodity markets. We in fact had some sell off today as the July corn contract closed down 14 and a half cents to end at 684 and a half. The Dece down six and three quarters to close at 609 and three quarters. In the soybean pits today, the July contract shed 35 and a half cents to close at 1508 and a half. The November down 20 and three quarters cents to close at 1438 and three quarters. Chicago wheat lower today as the July contract sold three cents lower to close at 680 and three quarters. September down four cents to close at 685 and three quarters. Hopping over into the livestock markets today, we had mixed trade today on the screen as the August live cattle contract was up a dollar forty-seven and a half to close at one twenty oh two and a half. The October up a dollar fifty-seven and a half to close at one twenty-five seventy-seven. And in feeder cattle today, higher as well with the August contract shooting up two dollars seventy-seven and a half cents to close at one fifty-one seventeen and a half. The September up two dollars sixty-two and a half cents to close at one fifty-three fifty-two and a half. Finding a little, little movement here in the cattle markets. Lean hogs had some movement today as well, but mostly to the downside as the July contract shed $1.35 to close at $119.97.5. The August down $1.72 to close at $116.97.5. And wrapping things up here with the Class 3 dairy milk futures. Mixed trade today as the July contract shed $0.06 cents to close at $17.54. The August up a nickel to close at $18.42. Without further ado, Ashton, let's kick it over to our conversation with Dr. Paul Sundberg. Well, we are joined today by Dr. Paul Sundberg of Schick Swine Health Information Center. Well, it's been quite a while since we chatted with you, I think three World Pork Expos ago now, but it's good to have you back on. It's good to be back together again, that's for sure. It certainly is. I want to start out here 
For those of our folks who have not heard of Schick, it's a somewhat fairly new organization by comparison to maybe some of the other industry organizations in the swine health field. Tell us a little bit about high-level 10,000-foot overview. What does Schick do? Sure. Um, 2015 was the start of Schick National Pork Board, a grant to get us going to monitor for emerging diseases, be better prepared to respond to them, and to take a look at the industry data and information to try to help producers do a better job out on the farm. Now, Dr. Sundberg, we've been dealing with African swine fever for a few years now, and I'm sure that people, of course, have been following along. I mean, if you're a pork producer, I don't know why you wouldn't follow along with this, but where do we stand from a global standpoint right now? What is the status of African swine fever? Yeah, so there's no doubt as far as African swine fever is an emerging disease, so it's something that we're keeping a lot of eye on. Um, it's still circulating in Eastern Europe, primarily in wild boar, but it spills over into commercial pigs in Eastern Europe and in Russia, especially in in Poland and Romania, not in Germany yet. It's in wild boar in Germany. So in Germany, it's staying in wild boar, hasn't gotten into commercial production. Um, Asia and continues to move through China. That was a big deal in 2018 when it hit China because that that is a virus, the, the virus that's going to affect pigs most, and it gets into the largest pig herd in the world. So that was a, that was a really big deal. Uh, from China, then the rest of Southeast Asia was at risk, and so it's gone through Southeast Asia well, as well, and continues, um, as those herds repopulate with naive animals, with susceptible animals. If the biosecurity isn't really high, they're going to continue to get infected. And I know you guys have done quite a bit of research when it comes to ASF. I know there's some new, newer research that you had to share with us today. Dive us through that. Well, uh, in 2019, we've got a grant from the USDA Foreign Ag Service. And that was to look at um, African swine fever as it infects farms in a country that has African swine fever alive and well and moving. We don't have it here, and we can look at it in a laboratory. But looking at it in a laboratory is different than looking at it out on the farm and how it really acts in a population of animals. So we got that uh, grant from USDA FAS to uh, study African swine fever in Vietnam real time as things go. And so there are a, a number of projects that we're doing in Vietnam um, to learn lessons about how it infects, how it um, moves, how to control it, and how to manage it, all with the idea that if we don't learn those lessons when something's firing in another country, if it gets to ours, we've got to learn them quick, and and that's not the right thing to do. We want to be prepared, so that's what our Vietnamese research is about. Okay, I've got to ask a follow-up question because we're talking high-level research, but get into the nitty-gritty with us a little bit. How did that research actually go about studying African swine fever in Vietnam? Were you infecting populations? Were you just looking at infected populations? Okay, so what we did was contract with people here in the U.S., and it's companies or universities that have um, contacts in Vietnam. They have collaborators on the ground in Vietnam. So the different projects that we have going on, what we're what 
the goal is, is to get onto farms in Vietnam that mirror the farms that we have here. So we want to make sure that we see how African swine fever acts on a farm that looks like it could be in the middle of Iowa and do that in Vietnam so we can learn those lessons. So that's, that's the idea. It's not infecting anybody. We don't have to go over there and infect anybody. They've got it moving around just fine. And we want to learn the lessons about it while it's doing that. Another aspect of research and development, of course, is vaccines. And that has been thrown around, and especially with the um, underground vaccines that were in China. So what's the status there? Are we seeing anything further develop or are we still seeing these underground vaccines kind of circulate? The answer to that is yes, both of those. There's a lot of development of safe and effective vaccine trials. That's a really good thing. There's a lot of use of underground, if you will, um, vaccines that have not been approved as being safe and effective. That's going on in Asia. Um, that's some concern because that really causes a subclinical type of infection that the animal can still be infected and still transmit, still carry it, and still still spread the virus. So that's some concern. Um, but if you would have asked me in 2018, what about a vaccine? I would have said probably 10 years from now, if we're lucky. And there's been a lot of progress. And I think it's much closer than that right now. Um, a lot of progress in being able to grow the virus, a lot of progress in being able to work on vaccines and the, the pieces of the virus that a pig will react to. There are USDA-based vaccines that are being tested now in Vietnam. And um, and I think we're much closer now. I'm not sure. I'm not going to give you a number of how closer, but it's not 10 years away. Well, we'd hold you to it if you gave us a timeline. So we won't do that. But from a U.S. perspective, you know, for a long time there, we were focused on having a plan in place. What's going to happen? What should we be focused on if African swine fever did touch U.S. shores? And I feel like COVID kind of overshadowed everything else that was going on. From a U.S. perspective, should we still be concerned about African swine fever and where are we at? Yeah, I'll tell you what. From a U.S. perspective, even during COVID, USDA and the state animal health officials and the industry organizations worked right through COVID and a lot of Zoom calls and a lot of work was done on prevention, preparedness and response. We're way ahead of that game where we were in 2018. Um, and so even though there was COVID, um, I got to give USDA and state animal health officials a lot of credit because we've really pushed them hard on, on preparation. Um, and, and the veterinary diagnostic labs as well have worked very hard on preparation. The COVID issue, for example, the veterinary diagnostic labs were called into service for testing COVID. And that gave them the ability to look at their uh, capacity. And what capacity do we have to be able to respond to an outbreaking emerging disease that is an emergency? And so those are the types of lessons and the types of preparation that went on even during the last 18 months. That almost kind of seems like a blessing in disguise to allow those VDL labs to be able to see what capacity they had here during COVID. So, yeah, you know, you got to take advantage of what you've got and learn the lessons when you can learn them. And so that was an opportunity to take advantage of that capacity question. And that's um, that's a big deal for the U.S. industry. 
And Shik is looking at a couple of other diseases, of course, besides African swine fever. I think that that one definitely takes the spotlight. And I think a lot of producers are trying to pay attention to biosecurity, especially when it comes to African swine fever. But for these other diseases, is there anything else that they should be doing and maybe point out some of those diseases? I mean, I'm no scientist or anything, so I can't really recall, but what should they really be paying attention to? Sure. So the center's focused on emerging disease. And, and for example, in 2013, when we got PED, we hadn't had that before. We needed to be able to respond to it quickly. And that's really what the center is about is what's the next PED that's going to come. Um, a couple of things that we've done with that is one, we have, uh, coordinated the veterinary diagnostic labs. So they all report their disease information in the same manner before they'd report it in different ways. And you couldn't put it all together. Looking at the information that's coming from all the diagnostic labs together in the same manner gives us the ability to uh, analyze that information, analyze that data, and look for something that may be emerging. So that's one example of our actions to try to get better for emerging disease and what's coming next. Another one is... Um, we put together a series of fact sheets, a series of, of um, cheat sheets, if you will, about different viruses. Nipah virus, for example, is just one. Um, there's chikungunya, which I'm sure you've never heard of, but we've got a fact sheet on that because if we get that, we need to know everything about that chikungunya virus as quickly as we can. So I'm hopeful we'll never need to use it. But if we do, we've got a cheat sheet with what's a transmission, what's a disinfection, how does it look in a pig, how do you manage it, how do you take care of it, and then a whole literature review behind that for the more academic types. We've got a variety. I think there's 25 or 30 different fact sheets in our library now that we're continually updating, making sure that we've got the latest information on and the latest research. And so that's part of Schick's mission is preparation. We don't want to be surprised again like we were with PED, and um, we're working hard to make sure that that won't happen. Well, it's just crazy, too, to think about the um, the number of viruses that continue to develop. You never know when a new virus pops up or disease pops up, which one's going to be the one that has a detrimental impact on the swine industry. So very neat that you guys are putting those resources together. And I think that leads us into a nice segue here to kind of a wrap up question. But Schick's a newer organization, as we mentioned. It's been around for, I think, since 2015, as you mentioned there. You guys have been putting together some research, looking and evaluating at what Schick's been doing here over the past couple of years. Because as you mentioned before we started recording today, you didn't know if Schick was even going to be a successful organization, one that that, uh, was able to stick around for this long. So tell us where you're at in terms of organizational uh, vision for the future. Sure. Um, So in 2015, when it was formed, the producer said we um, got spurs in the late 90s, in the 80s and 90s. We got um, uh, rotavirus and and we've got PED. We've got to do something different. We've got to learn lessons and do something different. And so they took a chance and they said, we're going to fund Schick and we're going to give it a five-year timeline. And if there's a return on investment on that, then great. Then we'll con- look at continuing it. If there's not, it was a good idea and it was a good try. We've put together a return on investment report that's available on swinehealth.org um, for anybody to see. And we think we've got a pretty good case of monitoring, of prevention, preparedness, response 
science and analyzing data. So we uh, think we've got a pretty good case, and we're looking forward to the future in this. I think we're going to have a strong future. Fantastic. Well, we'll have to connect. Hopefully not another three World Pork Expos from now. Hopefully just next year. But Dr. Paul Sundberg, thank you again for joining us and giving us an update on where everything sits. My pleasure. Good to visit with you. Thanks again there to Dr. Sundberg for joining us at World Pork Expo to talk. I believe he was our very first interview that we did this week. So very excited to have him on and see where Schick has been. Of course, I wasn't a part of the original conversation once uh, Schick was coming out, but I was able to be a part of this one. And we have a lot more conversations that we are going to be sharing over the next couple of weeks. So folks, be sure, of course, to tune in at agnewsdaily.com or wherever you get your podcasts and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.